Our Lord and our God, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We do thank you, Father, for your grace, and we do thank you for your mercy. We ask that as we go and journey into this book this morning, that you would give us, Father, by your grace, by your spirit, listening ears, understanding minds, believing hearts, and Father, by the power of your spirit, Holy Spirit, enable us to have feet that are active, feet that are not stagnant or idle, but feet that are quick to put into practice all of the truths found within your holy inspired word this morning. I decrease so that you may increase. I become less that you and you alone can become more. Father, be glorified this morning. Let your people not hear me or see you or see, or see me, but hear you and see you. We thank you for all of this and we pray that you are are glorified and it is for the glory of God that we pray and for the sake of Christ. Amen. I do want to thank you for joining us on this Lord's Day as we begin our study in the book of Esther. You may be wondering, as we are together studying through this book of Esther, of all of the books in sacred scripture, why this one? Why this book? And I could answer that question in a number of ways. But I might begin by answering that question with responding, why not this book? Right? It is in the 66, so why not this book? And I might also add, we've been studying through John's gospel for the past two years. And we must warn against assuming that the Old Testament is unimportant is why we're here this morning. But I believe more pressingly, the reason why we are studying this morning through the book of Esther is because we live in a world full of events that often leave us perplexed and confused. We often look at the world and all of its happenings, and we see very little that encourages us concerning the future. And we are even tempted at times to ask, where is God? I believe this may be what the people of God were asking or even thinking in the days of Esther. In the book of Esther, we see great events. There are kings decreeing and deciding. We see great events happening. And history is being shaped by those events. We may read these ten short chapters and miss the great message, though, of the book of Esther. And it is this, that behind the seemingly ordinary events of the world, God is powerfully working out his decreed purposes for his glory. Behind the seemingly ordinary events of life, God is living up to his covenant promises and he is being the faithful covenant God of his people. And we too, we need to be reminded that in all of the events that happen in our lives, the seemingly ordinary events that God is mightily at work when he seems to be most invisible. 
God is mightily at work, even when he seems to be the most invisible. The book of Esther is the third of the historical books that belong to the period of exile. You'll hear me, you, you will hear me refer to it as the exilic period. It is the, the period of time when the Jews were in exile. The three books that belong to this historical period are Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. These events in Esther occur shortly before the events recorded for us in Esther or Ezra and Nehemiah. These events in Esther occur shortly before Ezra and Nehemiah. In the book of Esther, we are dealing with Israel in captivity. We are dealing with Israel in exile. Again, the exilic age. At this point in the story, Israel has been in captivity in Babylon. For 100 years, it is 586 B.C., or it was 586 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar came and uprooted disobedient Israel from the land of promise, carrying them off as captives to Babylon. 100 years have passed, and many of the Jews who were in the empire in those days, the days of the ruler that that we will see in this book, They have refused to go home to the land of promise. In 520, King Cyrus decrees their freedom to go home. But rather than going back to a broken and desolate land of promise, they decided to remain where they were in Babylon. They settled. They were comfortable in the godless land of Babylon. Why? Because of the prosperity And the ease that is found, or that was found in Babylon. Brothers and sisters, affluence, or so-called prosperity, has a way of killing our spiritual vision. Affluence, or prosperity, has a way of killing our spiritual vision. Being prosperous, if you will, has a way of absorbing our hearts, and our minds to this passing world. Affluence has a way of of dulling our appetites for the things of God and for the service of God. Affluence, comfort, they have a way of killing our spiritual capacity. And at this time, the people of God have allowed themselves to be compromised by comfort. Have you ever been compromised by comfort? They did not want to burden themselves. They did not want to be shaken or stirred by returning to a broken and desolate land, although it was a promised land. Many chose to remain at ease in godless Babylon rather than return to the rigors and hardships of the promised land. What the book of Esther displays for us is that even in that That God has not given up on his people. And that God will never forsake his people. And how ironic is it then. That this book. That in this book. The name of God is never even mentioned. It is one of two books. In which the name of God is never mentioned. The other book being the songs of Solomon. And yet. The ruler in this book. 
We'll find out his name in a moment. His name is mentioned 175 times. The ruler of this book mentioned 175 times. The God of all the universe mentioned zero times. God is never mentioned. Yet when you read this book, you will find that it is God who is the main character of this book. God is nowhere to be mentioned, but God is everywhere present in the book of Esther. His presence and his hand are displayed all throughout this book. And as you read this book and as we study this book together, you will see that God is putting himself on display, even though he is unnamed. And I pray that as we study this book, you will see that behind all the, uh, of the, the apparent ordinary happenings of the world, even the cataclysmic happenings of the world, That God is overruling and providentially shaping and directing every aspect of human history and human destiny. The Lord is bringing to pass his purposes for his eternal glory. The name of God is never mentioned. Why? Purposely? Yes. Because God, the Holy Spirit, intended that we might learn that amidst All of the ordinary, seemingly ordinary events of life. That the hand of the Most High is ever present. Now, let us go back in history for just a moment. It is 480 B.C. A massive Persian army marches to face rebel forces of Athens and their Greek allies. The powers of Persia. Warring against the powers of Greece. Ancient sources, they number the Persian army to be some one million soldiers. Modern sources numbered about in the hundreds of thousands. But Persia was nevertheless putting on a mighty display of their army and of their power by showing their great number of army. Persian territory stretched from modern day Libya, which is in Africa, to Pakistan or Asia Minor. Persia was the largest empire in history. It was the second greatest empire after the Babylonian Empire. It is estimated that within the population of the Persian Empire, there were 50 million people. 50 million people. The Persians conquered the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C. and ruled for 200 years before they were eventually replaced by another world empire, Greece who were later replaced by another world empire, Romans. The regions of Greece had been conquered by the Persians, and they were led by a man by the name of Darius. You remember Darius? He's found in the book of Daniel. 550 B.C. His armies were defeated by the Athenians at a battle called the Battle of Marathon in 490. Called the Battle of Marathon because... It was located in Marathon. A messenger by the name of Phaedibes, he ran 26 miles after this war to tell of the victory and to celebrate. And because of this run from Athens to Marathon, the place is known as, or the the event became known as Marathon, where we run 26 miles became an athletic Olympic event. King Darius 
was furious and determined to regain revenge on the Athenians for defeating them in this war. But he dies before he can gain revenge. So the burden of vengeance falls on his son, Darius. Oh, falls on the son of Darius, a man by the name of, listen closely, Xerxes. The vengeance for the loss of Darius falls upon the, the burden, the son of Darius, Xerxes. He rose to power in 486 and reigned until 464. Now, when he takes the throne, his first order of business is to subdue problematic Egypt and problematic Babylon. But vengeance on the Athenians will have to wait until 481. He assembles an army of 250,000 men. They are led by Xerxes. The Persians march for war into Greece, but they are defeated by the Greeks who drive the Persians out in retreat. Within this great battle, there are some famous battles that maybe you've heard of. The Battle of Thermopylae. The 300 Spartans. The Battle of Salamis, where the Persian navy loses 300 warships. These battles continue to rage until a man by the name of Alexander the Great leads Greece in one final push and they conquer the Persian Empire. And they are established as the new world power, the Greek Empire. Now that is all a great and fine history lesson, isn't it not? But what does that have to do with the book of Esther? It has much to do with the book of Esther. Xerxes has a Persian name. His Persian name is Kash Yarasha. Kash Yarasha. His Hebrew name is Akash Ravash. But you know his name as Ahasuerus. How do you know his name as Ahasuerus? Let's go to Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus. The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. And those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. The Darius, or the ruler of the book of Esther, is Xerxes, the son of Darius, who fought the Greeks and who ultimately lost the Persian Empire to a new world power, Greece. He is the grandson of Cyrus the Great, the Persian ruler who found we the Persian ruler found in the book of Daniel, Cyrus the Great, who decreed that the Jews could return home after seventy years of captivity. Ahasuerus is Xerxes. Now, let all of that history now bring you back to this. The man Xerxes, who has been conquered by Alexander the Great, is Ahasuerus, whose heart is also captured or conquered by a little orphan girl named Esther. Are we all on the same page? This book bears the name of Esther. The author is unknown. Possible candidates are Mordecai, Esther's cousin, which we'll find out more about in a few minutes. Or it could be the prophet Ezra or Nehemiah, who both lived at that time. Nevertheless, the true author of this story 
is God the Holy Spirit. After setting the scene, there is a, a, pro- a profound deceptiveness about the narrative of this book. It is a narrative that, that builds up and it builds up slowly. The story opens up with Ahasuerus. We know him as Xerxes, but we're going to call him Ahasuerus. So make that connection in your mind. He is parading his power and all of his achievements before his subjects. Look at verse 4. While he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. It is possible that the writer is intentionally caricaturing the pathetic show that Ahasuerus puts on before his guest. It is a picture of uninhibited, pathetic indulgence. Look at verse 8. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of this palace, do as each man desired. There are no limits. Do as you desire. There are commands, orders, whatever any man wants, give to him. The writer is almost intentionally saying, look at this pathetic man. The world, in all of its shame, it prides itself on indulgences. It prides itself on emptinesses. And now here is a man whose whole horizon is taken up with things that will in due time Perish and be consumed. In verses 6 through 8, there was a list of treasures. There were white cotton curtains, violet hanging fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods, marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of poffery, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. What is the author doing? What is he doing? Listen, what what is he doing? He's saying, look at it all. Look at all of the emptiness of this man's treasures. He has nothing that will last. Nothing that will live beyond his own horizons. Dear ones, does that describe you at all this morning? Rich in goods, but poor in soul. What are your treasures? Do you treasure that which is unseen? Do you treasure the grace of God in Jesus Christ and in salvation won by Christ for his people? Do you treasure the glory of God? Or are you consumed with that which will be consumed? On the seventh day of this feast, at the height of his drunken revelry, King Ahasuerus orders Queen Vashti. Here now is another character in the story. Enter Queen Vashti. At the height of his drunken revelry, or at the height of his drunkenness, he orders Queen Vashti to come and present herself in all of her royal regalia before himself and the other drunk princes and subjects. The king is furious at the response of the queen. She has refused to come and stand before a room of drunken men. Can you blame her? She would be disgraced. She would be embarrassed. She refuses to come. Ahasuerus is furious at her insubordination. 
It is public embarrassment. He has been publicly disgraced, publicly disobeyed. So he goes to the wise men of his day and asks, according to the law, what should be done or what can be done to Queen Vashti because of her disobedience? The wise men, they warn Ahasuerus that this insubordination could lead to nationwide insubordination. Wives uh, refusing to obey their husbands. So they devise a nationwide decree. Verse 19 through 22. Queen Vashti will be removed from her position and she will be replaced with one better than she. And all the women, low and high, must submit to their husbands. This pleased the king. Now pause for a moment. Was Vashti wrong to disobey her husband, her covenant head? Was she wrong? You must read the scriptures this way. When you read the scriptures, you must ask yourself questions like, well, was that a wrong thing or a right thing for her to do? No, she was not wrong. The cause of this controversy was not the actions of Vashti, but rather it was the conduct of Ahasuerus. Now, this man will search for a woman. What kind of woman? He will search for a woman that will do what Vashti will not do. And what will he find? He will find Esther. Will you notice that in all of the schemes and plans of men, God, the sovereign Lord, is at work bringing to pass his purposes. And no one looking on at that particular time would have had no idea. It would have completely went past the mind of the average person watching along. It is unlikely that those looking on would have said, Ah, yes, God Almighty, the covenant king, has not given up on his people. Highly unlikely. And yet, in the midst of all of this, God is bringing Esther to the throne, and she will, she will also disobey her covenant head. So that she may save her people and honor God. Husbands are to be the kind of men that make it easy for their wives to obey. Husbands are to be the kind of men that make it easy for their wives to obey. Husbands, do we make it difficult by being unfeeling? By being unthinking, by being callous or uncaring, do we make it difficult for our wives to obey us? Let us be men that our wives love to obey. We make it easy for them. So what is the response to all that has happened? There will be a nationwide search for a new queen. And now the momentum of the story is picking up pace. It starts to accelerate. The length of time between chapter 1 and chapter 2 is... Four years. Between chapter 1 and chapter 2, we have a four-year period. In that time, it is possible that Ahasuerus is busy battling, fighting military campaigns. And now he's returned from battle. And the young kings make a a suggestion to the king who's come back from battle. Verse 2 of chapter 2. Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the providences of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel 
under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of all the women. The suggestion is this, a nationwide beauty contest. And out of all of the women, the queen has his choice to choose, the king has his choice to choose which will be his new queen. Who would have thought that the God of heaven and earth would be even involved in the midst of this tacky event? A beauty contest. And God is ordering and ordaining the actions and decrees of men. Those looking on would have surely never thought that God would have anything to do with such an event. But God is on the field even when he is most invisible. God is bending the events of human history to accomplish his will. And that is most encouraging for us. Even in this tacky event, even in this tacky beauty contest, God is ordering the events. How encouraging is that for us today? My son and I sat on our bed last night. He playing on his iPad, which is, is something of something else. Me shopping on eBay. And as we are having the television on, there is a, de- a debate between two candidates. And neither one are choices that you and I would pick. And we are tempted to stand back and to watch the debate between these two bickering parties, both immoral, both out for their own pursuits. And we are tempted in watching the debate between two immoral people. Where is God? And if God is in the midst of a beauty contest, you better believe that God is in the midst of even this shocking at times political race. Verse 5, chapter 2. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel who was, whose name was Mordecai. The son of Jar, son of Shimi, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Mordecai is some 15 years older than his cousin, an orphan by the name of Esther. Her Persian name is Esther. It may be related to the Babylonian god, Ishtar, which means star, right? But her Hebrew name is Hadassah, which means myrtle or plant. But it has a deeper meaning. It means this. I will be hidden. I will be hidden. And Esther's beauty does not go unnoticed by the officials. She was indeed among those who would be pampered. And brought before King Ahasuerus. The women spent a year of of preparing to stand before the king. One year of prepping. One year of being pampered. For one moment to stand before the king. While the other women. And the historian Josephus tells us there were some 400 women. While the other women were requesting cosmetics to stand before the king. Esther asked for nothing. Except for that which was advised by the king's eunuch. Now because of her countenance. And because of her character. The Bible says that she gained favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And now it is the time. It is the time for her to stand before the king. And she stands before the king without all of the gimmicks of beautification. She stands before the king. 
Esther, chapter 2, verse 16. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, into his royal palace, in the tenth month, which is the month of Tabeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes (laughs) to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is... A Cinderella story. She stole the king's heart. This little orphan girl from a conquered and exiled people. Out of all of the women, she is elevated to the highest position that any woman could seek after. She is crowned queen. Is this just some coincidence? Of course not. There is a power at work that is greater than the power of Ahasuerus. We know that it is the sovereign Lord of the universe at work. God is working through the affections of King Ahasuerus. But here is an interesting fact. Through all of that is all that has happened, Esther does not tell the king that she's a Jew. She is warned by her cousin Mordecai, do not tell the king that you are a Jew. She's the queen. And not long after she is the queen, crown queen, her cousin Mordecai is now sitting at the entrance of the king's palace. What is her cousin doing there? Think about that question. What is Mordecai doing at the king's palace? Mordecai is still looking after his cousin. He is still hanging around the palace and making sure that his cousin is well. And then an interesting thing happens while Mordecai just happens, and you may hear me say this often, just happens to be sitting near the king's gate. Look at chapter 2, verse 19 through 21. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made it known her her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bichthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to the queen Esther. And Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. When the, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. While Mordecai is sitting there, he hears a plot to, oh, to kill the king. These are the royal officials who guarded the king. They had access to the king and they were planning to assassinate him. We don't know the reason for their plot, but Mordecai just happens to be sitting near so that he could get ear of the plot. He tells Queen Esther, Esther tells the king, the king investigates, it founds to be true. They hang these two individuals. 
The Persians take record of it. They took record of everything. That's why we know so much about them. The king's recorder write down or wrote down the good deed of Mordecai so that they could return such loyalty with rewards at the proper time. There would come a day when the king would repay Mordecai for his kindness. Now, as we enter the third chapter, we are introduced to a new character, a man by the name of Haman. Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamaditha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman, sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Haman. Haman is an Agagite. Do you see that there? Haman, the Agagite. The writer makes a very clear note to accompany the people of Haman each time Haman's name is mentioned. You will not see Haman's name mentioned without the Agagite mentioned next to it. This is no small detail. The nationality of Haman was the origin of his hatred toward the Jews. To understand this, we've got to go back. Exodus to the Exodus of Egypt. When the Israelites come out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 17, they are are attacked by a certain people, the Amalekites. The Amalekites attack the Israelites. The Amalekites are descendants of Esau, the son of Isaac. Because the Amalekites attack the Jews in Deuteronomy 25, God cursed them and decreed that they would one day be extinct from the earth. Four centuries later, 1 Samuel Don't turn there. King Saul has conquered the Amalekites. But he's done something wrong, hasn't he? He's done something that God has not commanded. Rather than destroy all the people, he spares some. He spares some of the goods. He spares some of the animals. And he also spares the king of the Amalekites. Do you remember his name? His name was King Agag. King Agag. Saul was supposed to kill King Agag, but he spared his life. This displeased the Lord, and the Lord removed Saul from his throne. In 1 Samuel, the prophet Samuel comes and sees the disobedience of Saul, takes the sword, and the Bible says, this is what the Bible says, so little ears, listen, uh, cover little ears. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 15 that, that, that Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. Now fast forward to the book of Esther. Haman is an Agagite. An Agagite. 
Although it was hundreds of years since God pronounced a curse on his people, hundreds of years since King Agag was hacked to pieces, Haman knew his family history, and he knew that it was a Jewish man who killed his royal ancestor. Haman is a relative of Agag. Now, why all this hatred toward Mordecai? Mordecai is a descendant of Kish. Kish is from the tribe of Benjamin. Who also was from the tribe of Benjamin? King Saul, who should have spared, or who tried to spare Agag, but failed to do so. Do you see this long line of family feuding that is still to that day, or that was to that day, still taking place? Haman fixed his hatred on Mordecai. And all of the Jews, and he would seek to destroy every single one of them. So Haman goes to the king, chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed. That they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. That they may be put, that they may be put, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took a signet ring from his hand and gave it to the Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. That may be how you say it. The enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you. The people also do to them. What seems good to you? Wow. Haman prepares a decree, sends them throughout all of the empire. They are going to kill the Jews on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is found in Esther 3.13. Utter chaos fills the entire land. Esther chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud, bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Queen Esther is informed by her young women of the plans of genocide. And she became became greatly distressed. She garments or she sends garments to Mordecai because Mordecai tore his own. But Mordecai sends them back. He will not accept any kind of of solace. Rather, he sends back those servants of Esther. He sends them with the decree that Haman sent throughout the land with the seal of the king so that she might go to the king and plead on behalf of all of the people. But it's not that simple. No one comes into the inner court of the king unless you've been summoned by the king, not even the queen. Violating this law could result in immediate death. And Esther has not seen the king in 30 days. It's impossible, Haman. It's not going to happen. Esther 4.13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will 
Man, if you have a Bible, circle that will rise for the Jews from another place. But if you and your father's but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The response from her cousin is you're also in danger. You will be found out and you will not escape. If you keep silent, deliverance will come. But God has maybe rose or risen. God has arose you. God has brought you up possibly for this very moment so that you could be taking part in saving the people of God. Mordecai is a Jew and he will not bow to Haman. Mordecai will not bow to Haman. He says something that encapsulates this book. Who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Brothers and sisters, your goings and, and your comings, they are ordained by God. Nothing in your life is by chance, not the place that you live and not the job that you work at. It may seem ordinary, but it is ordained by God. You are not where you are by accident. You may also be there for such a time as this. Verse 16 and 17. Go, she says, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, day or night, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then, the, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai went and did everything that Esther said. Prayer or prayer is not mentioned, but there is no Fasting without prayer. Amen. And in chapter five, verse number one. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inter- in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal th- throne inside on the inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw the saw Queen Esther standing in the court. She won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of his scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to half of my kingdom. The moment is powerful. The moment in which she is putting her life on the line to stand before the people. We could read through that and not miss or miss the drama that is filled with that particular passage. She could die if she stands before the king. And can you imagine her opening the door? Slowly, as it were, possibly walking in slowly with her head bowed, afraid to maybe even look at the king. And in her fear, she lifts her head. And rather than seeing her destruction, grace is given to her and she is drawn near. Ahasuerus is once again smitten by his queen. Request whatever you like. Ask whatever you will. Up to half of the kingdom, it is yours. And what does she request? She requests a banquet. 
invite Haman to join us, please. So the king summons Haman. Look at uh, chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. And as they were sitting, or as they were drinking wine and after the feast, he said, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? So the banquet is taking place. What is your wish? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is. Can you imagine the pause there? There's got to be a pause. There's got to be fear. My request is, uh, if you... If I have found favor in your sight, in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and to fulfill my, que- my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them tomorrow. And then tomorrow I will do as the king has requested. This is banquet number one. The timing, for whatever reason, was not right. Esther could not get out of her mouth what was in her heart. One more banquet. Let's do this again tomorrow. Invite Haman to come back. Now, Haman loves this. Haman loves this. He is joyful and glad in heart. He has a plan to kill the Jews, and it's going accordingly. He's receiving honor from the king. He's even being invited to a private dinner with just the king and the queen. And while stepping outside after this first banquet, he lays eyes on Mordecai. Mordecai is where he always is, at the king's gate, right? But why does he become so enraged when he sees Mordecai? Verse 9, because Mordecai neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Why was he so enraged? Because Mordecai was unmoved by his presence. Everyone else bowed before him. You ever been around people like that that could care less if you're in the room? Mordecai was essentially taking that kind of posture toward Haman. You ain't nobody. <laughs> Haman restrained himself. He went home and began to boast of his riches to his sons and, to, and of all of his promotions. His wife is there too. That he, all of the promotions that he'd been given by the king. He began to boast that he was the highest of all the officials. He said in verse 12, even Queen Esther Let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow, this is chapter 5, by the way. And tomorrow, also, I am invited by her together with the king. Chapter 5, verse 12. All of that was so sweet. Everything is wonderful. But then read the next verse, verse 13. But there's still something nagging at Haman's mind. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me. All of the things he's boasting about, all the things he's bragging to his wife and kids and officials about, all of that means nothing. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the the king's gate. All of those things mean nothing as long as Mordecai is still alive. If he is dead, life will be so much sweeter. Lord willing, you don't think about that with anybody in your lives. Haman's wife and friends suggest that he has gallows erected and Mordecai hung. Gallows are what you see to the old west, right? Those old, old gallows where they hang people. His wife and friends suggest build some gallows, hang Mordecai, then life will be truly complete. 
This idea pleased Haman. Yeah, it's a good idea. While Haman slept peacefully, King Ahasuerus is tossing and turning. Chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders. Now listen to this. I can't sleep. He gives orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Tarish, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now stop there for a moment. One man sleeps like a baby thinking all of his his evil deeds will be accomplished. Another man is tossing and turning. And if all of the things that he could do to make himself go back to sleep, I don't know what you do to make yourself go to sleep. Maybe some of you count. Maybe some of you read. Maybe some of you watch videos until you fall asleep. King Ahasuerus asked for the book of memorable deeds of all of the things to be brought to him. Bring to me the book of memorable deeds. A coincidence? I think not. And of all of the books, and I'm assuming that there may have been many books of memorable deeds. And of all of the books that the, the servants grab, the one book that they do grab is the book that contains the actions of Mordecai. And of all of the things, or all of the places that the servants could have begun, and when reading that book, they begin... Or they glance over the part where Mordecai showed his loyalty to the king. An accident. A coincidence. Do you believe in luck? My friend, even the seemingly ordinary events of life are actively ordered by God. Ahasuerus wants to make sure that he repays this good deed. What, should, what has been done? Nothing has been done. Just then, Haman has returned from his wonderful sleep. And he's about to ask the king, can I hang Mordecai? <laughs> of all the things, of all the, the, the events, he comes, possibly skipping, you might think. Skipping into the king's palace. But before he can ask a word, verse 6. I'm in chapter 6, correct? So Haman came in, and the king said to him, king has a question for him. So before Haman can ask a question, Ahasuerus asked a question. Now listen to how this works out. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Oh, and Haman, Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes. He thinks, he's, he thinks that the king is, is referring to him. Let, let royal robes, right, be brought, which the king has worn. Give, give that man your own robes to wear. And the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes uh, and the horse be handed 
to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on a horse throughout the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king's delight to whom the king delights to honor. Do all these wonderful things and surprise, surprise. The king says, great, go do that for Mordecai. (laughs) Not what Haman was expecting, was it? Instead of being honored by the king, Haman has to shout out to all of the providences, thus shall be done to the man the king delights to honor. You imagine. Verse 13. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened. Can you imagine him going home and telling the story that I just told you? (laughs) Then the wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him. But you will surely fall before him. Oh, he's a Jew? Oh, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. He's of the people of God. Haman, you're on the wrong side on this issue. So he goes back to the palace. He's going back now because he's got a second banquet to attend, right? Things can only get better from here, right? Chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, if I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold and I and my people are to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Save me. Save my people. Someone's trying to kill us. The king's response is, who in the world is trying to kill my queen? Oh. Who is he? Verse 5. Where is he? (laughs) This is what the Bible says. Who has dared to do this? Who is he? Where is he? Can you imagine, as Esther is speaking, Esther's at the table, Ahasuerus is at the table, and Haman is at the table. If Haman is sitting upright, can you imagine, as Esther is speaking, (laughs) Haman is slowly but surely trying to slide under that table. Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman, obviously, was terrified before the king and the queen. Verse 6 or 7, the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. The king is so furious, he gets up and leaves the room. That's how upset he is. But Haman stayed 
Now, what does he do as the king exits? What does he do? He stayed and begged for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was begging for my life, my initial posture might be to get on my hands and knees or to grab the person in complete and utter desperation. That may be the scene as King Ahasuerus leaves in fury, but then returns back into the room. He sees possibly Haman taking hold of his wife, begging her. Let's go on. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. So he's frolicking on the floor, right? And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? Now you're on my now you're touching my wife in my own house. As the word left the mouth of the king, look at that next comma. They covered Haman's face. You ever seen the old kind of mafia movies where they just put a thing over your face and you're gone? It's kind of what happened there. My wife just gave me a, a look. covered his face from the executors you're gone and how would they kill him listen to what the the Harbona one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king in attendance on the king said moreover the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits. The king said, go hang him on that. It's right there in verse 10. It doesn't say go hang him on that. It says hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated, was subsided. How did they kill him? They killed him on the very gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. 24 hours prior to this, this man was on top of the world. Now he's being hung to death. The king took all of the property of Haman. He gave it to the queen. And guess who she gave it to? Mordecai. Here you go, cuz. <laughs> Esther 8-2, Esther 9. The king exalted Mordecai. And he became to the king of Persia what Daniel was to the king of Babylon. Now, what about this decree to kill all the king, all, all the Jews, right? Once the king made a decree, he could not rescind the decree. So what does he do? The king decrees that the Jews could defend themselves against any efforts to take their lives and that they could prepare themselves for that day. The day is March 7th, 470 B.C. They defended themselves against the attacks and 75,000 enemies of the Jews were killed as the Jews defended themselves. And guess who backed them up in that arm, in that war? King Ahasuerus. The day, that day is established as a festival that is still celebrated today, which is called the Feast of Purim. The Feast of Purim. Purim means lots because Haman cast lots as to the day which they would destroy the Jews. You read on in Esther 9, verses 23 to 28, and this day is a two-day celebration. After Haman was hung, Mordecai was exalted to second in command. 
And he loved and honored the queen, as did Ahasuerus. Let's go to chapter 10, verse 3. For Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Where was God in this book? It may seem like Mordecai is the hero, but it is truly the Lord God who is the hero. Every detail displays that he alone is in control of the details of life. From the millions of women dwindled down to 400, to Mordecai being positioned to hear a plot, to a night where the king cannot sleep and just happened to read the royal records where Mordecai is mentioned. The hand of God is all over this book. These are too coincidental to not be ordered and ordained by God. God thunders through the book of Esther. There are no miracles per se in this book because the whole book is a miracle. Now what is the message for you this morning? While you are going through the details of life and trying to control every single aspect, brothers and sisters, there is an overarching power the Lord God Almighty, who is in control of all of the details of your life. So therefore, you can rest. You can rest in him. As one of his children, you can rest in that. It is wonderful to live with that kind of confidence that God is in control of all things. And who would have thought that as you open the book of Esther... Who would have thought looking on for one moment that the indulgences of Xerxes and his gross gross indulgences of hedonism, that God was mightily at work for the purpose of guarding, keeping, and saving his covenant people. No one would have believed it. No one would have thought it, but he was. And who would have thought as a man lay broken, Bloody and bruised on a cross that God was reconciling the world to himself. No one would have thought it, but he was and he did. What can I take away from this story? What, what, what is a story about? I've, I've got five things for you in closing. The story is about God acting in covenant faithfulness toward his people. God acting in covenant faithfulness toward his people. It is a story about Esther, a woman raised up by God to significant service. Raised up by God to significant service. It is a story about Mordecai, a man who had confidence in God that God had not abandoned his people. A man who had confidence in God that God had not abandoned his people. It is a story about the world. And Satan's unrelenting opposition to God and his church. It is a story about the world. And Satan's unrelenting, even to this day, opposition to God and to his church. And ultimately, it is a story about the futility of opposing God and his church. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Esther falls in line in the genealogy of Christ. 
God was saving his covenant people and preparing the way for the promised seed of Abraham. You can trust that God is in control. Let us stand. Our Lord and God, our faithful covenant-keeping King, our great and glorious High Priest, our Mediator who stands in the gap for His covenant people, those whom He has foreknown before the foundations of the world, those who He never began to love, as our brother Hamilton said, But those, as the Lord Jesus said, he has loved with an everlasting love. God, thank you that there was never a point in which you changed and began to love us. But you have loved us and set your heart on us with an eternal love that is unwavering that is immutable, that is impassable, Lord. We come before you this morning as a people that you have rescued from genocide and annihilation. We come this morning as a people who have placed our faith and trust in God the Son, who has come and accomplished for us that which we could never accomplish on our own. We celebrate redemption that has been accomplished, applied. And one day, Lord, we will be surrounding a table. We will be surrounding the Lamb. We will lay down our golden crowns. We will every tongue Nation and people confess, you are God, and there is no other. We celebrate the broken body and blood that was shed on behalf of your people.